What do you look for here, Bruno, in this match? Well, you know, this is, as you said, it's, uh, it's going to be strictly scientific. It's going to be just moves, uh, holds, counter holds, escapes. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, Olympico is a very talented wrestler. There's no question about it. But, of course, he's in there against Backlund, who is the world champion, you know, which tells you that he definitely is the better man. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode 117 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson. And today, we're going to take a look at one that I've also had the queue for a long time. I know I said that for last week's show. This is WWF All-Star Wrestling from May 17th, 1980. So going back to that year for the first time in a very long time. I want to say it was Bruno San Martino and Larry Zabisco on Championship Wrestling from February of 1980. But it was a very interesting year for the World Wrestling Federation. There were a lot of different things going on, especially relative to the other years around it, at least in my opinion. Very excited for episode 117, being the sitcom guy that I am and the ones that I've liked over the years. 117 is the exact number of episodes that the Brady Bunch did and Mr. Belvedere. So joining a few of my passions all together at one time. It, it just makes me feel so good inside. But first, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greensmountain at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greensmountain. Give me a follow on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. More on Pro Wrestling Only, prowrestlingonly.com, coming up a little bit later in the show. In addition, I have a very crowded podcast recording schedule this week, as not in addition to this show, I'll also be recording two episodes of the Place to Be podcast. I believe they'll be staggered out and will be released a little bit later. Both, of course, as I as it always is when I'm on there, the Saturday night main events from May of 1989 and then later July of 1989. And I have to admit that those are two of my favorites in the entire series, so I was very excited to talk about that. Also, an Adams Division podcast that we we're going to tape, me and Steve Bennett, last weekend, but he had some equipment issues. Because apparently, Steve's equipment dates to 2012, so sometimes it can be a little finicky. We're going to be recording that, I think, this coming weekend when I get a little bit more time because, you know, I get hockey a couple of nights this past week I certainly enjoyed that first game I, I was a little worried when the Bruins fell behind two to nothing to St. Louis but from that point forward the fact that they answered less about a minute and a half later and scored four straight goals to win four to two as I speak right now it is Tuesday morning and I don't know how game two is going to turn out but uh, let's let's just hope it's for the best and that there's not a hundred overtimes and that I don't have to 
come home and record the end of this show. Although th- this one is is a little different in terms of how it's laid out. There are, there are a lot fewer segments on this show, as you'll see. Now, this past weekend, my wife was on a mission to pick up a specific kind of T-shirt for her father, who turns 61 this year. You may recall, if you listen back to episode 68 in the archive, uh, the intro talks about our trip to Nashville, which was actually for his 60th birthday, and how we were running around town because it was supposed to be a surprise, and he was on a tour bus, and I actually saw him through the window of it. It was a very kind of amusing story. But to, she needs to get him a long sleeve T-shirt, which can be a little bit difficult to find given that it is a long sleeve T-shirt at the end of May, and not every place is going to make them. And oh yeah, it can't be black either, because the man's a funeral director, and I think he's had enough of that crap. So you got to find it in like maroon, any other color in the in the rainbow, it doesn't matter. And that led to us going to six breweries in an approximate 48-hour span between Friday night and Sunday night. And this was a very good thing because we usually stick to our home base, the places that are within a 10 or 15-minute drive from my house, which would be Navigation Brewing in Lowell, Oak and Iron Brewing in Andover, which were among the six. But to kind of get out and see the new stuff that's out there. Notch Brewing was actually at Woodman's of Essex, a fantastic seafood, but birthplace of the fried clam. And one of those places that you'd see on like a TV show, it's like, oh yeah, the lines are 30 minutes out the door. But to their credit, the line actually moves and it's pretty well organized for a place as crowded as it was. And they had a Notch Brewing beer garden out back, which something I feel like makes them quite a bit of money given that I've never seen them use this space that they have out by the marshes behind the restaurant. And up in New Hampshire, there's a place called Backyard Brewery, which is kind of a large restaurant. I guess the the place used to be called The Yard, and they bought it and converted it into like a you know brew pub type place with outdoor seating, all of that. We also passed this place, Blue Cat Brewing, which was great because now that I have a cat that is kind of blue... It, it was something, well, hoping maybe that they would have t-shirts, but they didn't have anything in the correct size or anything like that. But they had some pretty good beer there. And then on Sunday, after the Woodman's and Notch experience, we went to this place. It was probably the winner of the weekend called True North, which definitely makes it sound like a Canadian brewery. There's also a True West brewery in Acton. So I wonder if they ever get crossed up with each other. The thing that I liked about the True North Brewery in Ipswich, Massachusetts. And and let this be a lesson, because there's a lot of breweries out there in Massachusetts. If you make a lot of good, high-quality beers that are under 5% ABV, I'm going to tell you, you're going to have me and my wife's business for life. can't be drinking some IPA that's 8.2% and has like 100 IBUs and just gives me a splitting headache for the rest of the day. I got other stuff that I need to accomplish, such as watching 1980 WWF. And as I said, a very solid year for the promotion. When you think of it immediately, you think of Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zbysko and their feud that runs the first half of the year up to the Shea Stadium show in August of that year. But you got Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, and we're going to see Hulk Hogan on this show. I feel like this program 
is a nice little time capsule as to what the WWF was in 1980, but with some weird stuff thrown in there. Bob Backlund being that weird stuff that we're going to see. And he has good matches with various people on the roster, a, a variety, even if he is kind of playing second fiddle. It's it's almost kind of like he's the CM Punk sort of champion, the Rey Mysterio, the one that you'd see in more modern times. But to have that in 1980, it's all Bruno-based because Bruno was the top star. If he was active... He was always going to be above Bob Backlund, which is why he kind of took a step back after 78, or at least attempted to. But there were some markets where Bob Backlund wasn't the draw or even close to what Bruno Sammartino was. The number one example of that is Boston. You look up Boston Garden results for Bob Backlund's title reign, and there's not a whole lot of defenses there, especially relative to a place like Philadelphia and MSG, where Bob was a god. But in Boston, Bruno was the guy, and the local promoter always wanted to have him go up there. You look at Bruno's limited results for the year 1981, he's he's basically doing Pittsburgh and Boston because he they want him headlining the shows up here. Ken Patera, another guy from 1980. He's the Intercontinental Champion on the show. It, this is probably the best that he ever was. And everybody sort of has this, oh, we just think of Ken Patera from after he got out of jail in 1987. And it's a terrible way. This is why you actually have to go back and watch stuff every so often to kind of remind yourself, oh yeah, this guy was actually good. Yeah, I'm actually suggesting that you re-watch wrestling matches. That is the premise of this show. I know that there are certain people who write newsletters who feel that that is folly and some sort of waste of time and that anything that comes out these days is way better to anything that was in the past. Now, I'm not on the payroll of any current promotions. I'm not saying that, you know, any specific you know, dirt sheet writer is. All I'm saying is, well, maybe I should comment on that event from Saturday, last Saturday night, where the team, uh, what's their name, the Box, they took on, basically they were trying to take down the old guard, I, I think from uh, America's neighbor, and uh, considered maybe some, some dinosaurs. And of course, I'm talking about the Bucks facing the Toronto Raptors. Oh, you thought I was going to talk about Double or Nothing. Well, I actually didn't see the show. <laughs> I mean, my thought about that is, g- give me a call when the weekly TV starts up, because that's still a long way away. That is in October. That's four months from now. I'll give it a watch on Tuesdays when it's actually on the air. I'm not too concerned about all this stuff leading up to it. And I want to be like, oh, save your ticket stubs for this one. Like, all right, all right, we get it. Yeah, okay, but hopefully this does stand the test of time because I want people in the business to have jobs and it'll you know, help for the popularity and everything. Patera's rivals are Pat Patterson, who he had just beaten for the Intercontinental title about a month before this, and Pedro Morales, who he would drop it to at the end of the year in a very interesting night at Madison Square Garden, a show that they did not tape for TV, which was pretty rare. Maybe one out of every 10 would be like that. But it was interesting because it was on the night John Lennon was assassinated in New York City. In the middle, he managed to retire Gorilla Monsoon in August at the Philadelphia Spectrum, which was kind of Gorilla's home arena. 
Pat Patterson was actually the referee for when Patera lost the title to Morales. But as I said, it's not on tape. And kind of an interesting psychology there where you have the guy who feuded with him actually refing the match. What is this, Ronnie Garvin, 1989, uh, <laughs> refereeing a Greg Valentine match? So as I said, it's a good time capsule of what's going on. There's not a lot of matches on this show. There are five of them, but you, there's some good representation here between Patera, Hulk Hogan, who we're going to see at the end of the show, Larry Zabisco, and then two other matches, Rene Goulet taking on Tor Kamada, which feels like it could have taken place in any year between 1970 and 1984. Both guys very much up there in years. And Bob Backlund in this one, in a bizarre bout with the masked El Olimpico. And by bizarre, what I mean is you will not understand what the hell is going on in this thing. When I say it is batshit insane, that's definitely understated because there has never been anything like this, at least in the World Wrestling Federation. Maybe a smaller promotion has done something like this. A exhibition match where... You don't have any pinfalls. And I don't mean like, oh, it's you know, it's going to be a 10-minute Iron Man match or whatever, for, for whatever that's worth. No, it's just a, an exhibition of wrestling holds, which is sort of like the bullshit that you would say to get around taxes or sports commission regulation, so, something to that effect. So, yes, that, that is going to go the full 10 minutes. And it's just completely bizarre and Bruno San Martino and Vince McMahon on commentary are particularly fascinating for that one. So with all that in mind, we should get right into episode 117. But as this is, we've got a 17 at the end of it. I'm going to first take a look at a sports moment. Yeah, we were looking back really far now, two whole years or even less than two years if it was after this point in the year, at a sports moment from the year 2017. Center field. Did he do it? Back it goes, and that ball is gone! It's out of here! There's a walk-off grand slam, and the Orioles win it! A three-home run game for Machado! Ah, yes. August 18th, 2017. One of the last times the Baltimore Orioles were relevant. Although they did have another game the following Friday, which I'm definitely going to address because it's one of my favorite live events of any kind that I've attended. But that game there, with Manny Machado hitting the walk-off Grand Slam that you just heard, one of my more prescient moments as a sports fan, and I guess you could call it an analyst, I'm walking with my wife. It's a hot, humid day in Baltimore. Eventually, the game starts in a rain delay because I think there were some thunderstorms. And I said, I know this ballpark, and I've seen enough games. The ball is going to be flying out of here. And sure enough, there were nine combined home runs hit by the teams just in the first five innings. The Machado one to win the game was actually the 10th thing that made it cool other than actually being right for once was getting to see Albert Pujols hitting a home run and he's well over 600 home runs now Mike Trout of course homer in the game as well and and he eventually got caught stealing in the ninth inning kind of a needless risk there up two runs I'm not sure what he was thinking on that one and a walk-off grand slam with my in-laws in attendance, the young boys uh, go into a baseball game with them for the first time. I went to Wrigley with them the following year, but that that was that was a lot of fun. And the fact that the hotel was about 
<laughs> you could see the hotel from the stadium. Always nice when you have that thing because you know you can, you can get right back to the room even if the game ran late because of the rain delay. And they had fireworks after the game as well. So three hours and 13 minutes for that game. I mean, after all, the game's nothing but home runs. You just run around the bases and then, you know, moving on. And I shall do that right into this show. Now, the intro song to All-Star Wrestling, the one that I played is not the overdub that you hear on the network. It is the actual one from the time period. And I can't figure out what song that is. It, the video you probably are familiar with, where there's a lot of Andre you know, t- picking up a guy, putting him in the corner. I think it's his actual tag team partner. And then you have the Johnny Rods trying to bend the metal thing around his head. And then Andre comes in and like wraps it around his neck. Kind of a famous image for that time period. As we go to our host for All-Star Wrestling, Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino, doing both shows. They did championship wrestling and all-star wearing the abc sports yellow canary blazers as they just kind of run down the show bruno bruno gives a little bit more analysis it's not like the old angelo mosca says one word exciting exciting now for those of you who keep score on these type of things and i know that you're out there the bruno san martino hair at this time period is more of the jonah hill from super bad motif where he's got like the afro going and it is a little bit puffier than usual One of the differences between All-Star Wrestling and Championship Wrestling, other than the obvious one, which is that it's taped in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and not Allentown, is that you have Gary Michael Capetta as the ring announcer, and he's often whitewashed from history, at least from a WWF perspective. Can't quite figure out why, other than to say he was definitely Gorilla Monsoon's guy as a ring announcer and not a Vince choice. I should probably pick up Gary Capetta's book. I feel like there's probably a lot of insight in there, but then again, I have a long list of books that apparently I bought while drunk a year ago that I still have to get to. I mean, The Woman from Glow? I mean, am I going to do another show on Glow when the Netflix show starts the new season? So Capetta, he does the State Athletic Commission reading, and it is Dr. John Woods and not Dr. George Zaharian that you would be used to hearing, but John Woods did not get caught up in any scandal. So we go to our first bout, which is Ken Patera, the Intercontinental Champion, taking on Steve King. Now, King is kind of a notorious jobber of that time. Not notorious for anything bad or anything that he did. Just somebody who was on TV a lot. And when you, when I see him signing autographs and he's kind of being mobbed, he's standing in the ring as the announcements are happening, and he's being handed stuff to sign. Like, do any of these people still have their Steve King autograph from when he autographed their program in Hamburg in 1980? I have to imagine that it is just lost to history, but I would love it if somebody had actually kept something like that. Like, what is the logic behind trying to get a Steve King autograph? And when he signs it, does he sign it as Steve King or does he sign it under his actual name? Well, you'd hope that he would sign it under his gimmick name. His actual real name is Jose Rivera, which is kind of confusing because you also have a different guy named Jose Luis Rivera at the same time. I don't know if he's necessarily active in 1980, but if you were looking back now, you would get confused. The thing I like most about Steve King 
is that he has the same name as a avowed racist congressman from Iowa. So here is this guy being billed from Panama, and now you have this guy in the U.S. Congress who has effectively been like, I don't see what's so bad with calling myself a white nationalist. Like, oh, really? You don't? I love the I love the congressmen from Iowa who are so concerned about immigration. Like, oh, they're invading our country. Like, yeah, they're all just pouring into freaking Iowa so that they can do meth with everybody else. Sorry if I have any listeners out there from Iowa, but it's not like I'm going out there to caucus in the you know, presidential primaries. You know, I, I'm not running for president. I'm just announcing that right now since it seems to be fashionable for everybody to announce their candidacy. Ken Patera can lay claim to being the best in the world for the year 1980. This guy was just an absolute god for this entire year. Not only do you have him winning the Intercontinental title on April 21st at Madison Square Garden, but that very same week, he wins the NWA Missouri title, which is often considered a stepping stone to the NWA title. WWF and the NWA on very much friendly terms this point because they had rejoined in 71 after Bruno lost the title the first time and Backlund would actually defend the WWF title in sort of a cross-promotional match against Harley Race at MSG in August. Patera actually defeated Kevin Von Erich for that title on the 25th of April so a hell of a week for Kenny. By the way this show in Hamburg was taped on May 7th. So Patera holds up the Intercontinental belt, and he yells something kind of incoherent. I I didn't quite get what he was saying. It, It doesn't really matter. He's just sort of taunting the crowd. The best part of the Ken Patera pre-match routine. And he is accompanied by his manager, the Grand Wizard, as most everybody who was a heel in the WWF had managers at this time. It was either going to be Blassie, Albano, or the Grand Wizard, depending on the type of wrestler that you were. Albano had the crazy ones. Blassie had the ones that maybe were crazy but were foreign. So he would have the non-U.S. guys. And Wizard would have more more like the technical and the strong men. Think Graham, think Patera. So he always had the greatest upside, in my opinion, of world title contenders, at least among those three guys. And Albano was kind of more in the tag team division anyway. So the bit with Ken Patera and his manager, the Grand Wizard, previous to all of the matches at this time is so hilarious, especially if you know a little bit about the Grand Wizard and who he was, Ernie Roth. And I've gone into this in previous episodes, but it actually bears repeating. Here is this man. He is diminutive. He's wearing colorful clothing that it purposely does not match. A turban on top of his head, you know, glasses kind of hiding his eyes as well. And he is a Jewish man calling himself the Grand Wizard as a sort of F.U. to the KKK. And he's also gay in real life as well. So to see this diminutive man get in the ring and get down on one knee in front of Patera like he is either going to perform something on him or perhaps propose marriage, which I don't know how far that would have gotten them in 1980, but hey, I I don't care what you do. It's a contract between two people. It was simply for the removal of Patera's pants, where he would just get down like that and make sure that he could get his pants off properly. And the crowd would always be like, oh, okay, like because it is 1980 and people were just a little bit different back then. And Patera just goes right at Steve King. He's not going to waste any time here. And his body slams are a little bit different 
than what you'd see from guys at the time period as he gets the guy up much higher, almost like he's a baseball pitcher throwing straight over the top of his head. There's, but also holding him up a little bit higher as well. And he follows each of the two body slams with an elbow and a backdrop and a delayed vertical suplex. So he's going to win this one quick, but he wants to get in his arsenal of offense as well as he locks in the swinging full Nelson, or is they're calling it a neck breaker? I don't quite understand. I mean, it's a full Nelson. I mean, that's pretty obvious as Gary Capetta announces this as a new record for All-Star Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, the time is a new record here on All-Star Wrestling in just 43 seconds. Your winner, Ken Patera. It's a shame the WWF likes to screw around with the records like that because I'd like to see an actual accounting of this. Like, what was the fastest match in the history of Wrestling Challenge? What was the longest match that ever aired on All-American Wrestling? What was the shortest match ever on Eleven Alive? I mean, there's a lot of different things that I would like to know. You say 43 seconds, I think he might have, he was able to beat him in about 10 seconds if he had chosen just to cover him after one of those horrible, horrible body slaps he gave him. And unfortunately for Steve King, he is leaving the ring, much like many others have left the ring, having faced Ken Patera on a stretcher with no doubt a neck injury of some kind. Well, to that, I would advise Steve King to actually keep his head up. I mean, maybe not too far up, you know, especially if he has a neck injury. Because, you know, previously, Kid Patera put a guy out in 77 named Billy White Wolf. And more than a decade later, he comes back as a fake Iraqi general type, as General Adnan, and main events a pay-per-view in Madison Square Garden. So, hey, it's not the end of your career here. A special exhibition. We're going to have 10 minutes of uh, rustling exhibition nonstop. Regardless of uh, if Backlund pins Olympico five or six times during the course of that ten minutes or the other way around. Well, thank you, Vince, for letting me know that it's going to be nonstop. I thought we were going to have to change matches in Atlanta or something like that. Or like that WrestleMania four tape where you had to take out tape one and put in tape two in the middle of a Hogan-Andre bear hug rest hold. Uh, okay, that's fine. And the notion of El Olimpico pinning Bob Backlund, a man who has never taken a pinfall in the WWF, you know, five or six times, <laughs> kind of funny. He's just kind of paying homage to the other side of what could potentially happen. So El Olimpico, this masked man who is standing in the ring signing autographs for the fans, is Joey Correa. And he is no relation to Astros shortstop Carlos Correa because I think... Uh, Joey only has one R in his name, although I've seen it spelled multiple ways. So El Olimpico, the Olympic, where does this name come from? Does it come from the Mexico 1968 Olympics? Nah, even though on the side of his mask is a little torch, which would indicate something to do with the Summer Olympics, presumably. I don't think he's celebrating the Winter Olympics. I did do a quick check just to make sure the little torch on the side of his mask was not the logo for the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. But I came across this anecdote from that particular Olympic Games where they actually started testing for drugs and doping tests. The introduction of doping tests resulted in the first disqualification because of doping. Swedish pentathlete Hans Gunnar Lijenwall was disqualified for alcohol use. He drank several beers just prior 
prior to competing in the pentathlon. That is so great that the first drug suspension in Olympic history was for drinking beer. Okay, so this is uh, presented as a 10-minute exhibition of holds. And I'm, I'm doing the little quote fingers as I say that because it sounds like one of those BS things that they would say to the State Athletic Commission to get out of having to pay taxes or have any sort of regulation. Oh, this is just an exhibition of holds. It, it, it is nothing else, you know, nothing more, nothing less. And there will be no finishes in this match, as they said. You can go for as many pinfalls as you want. Hey, if I wanted to watch stuff with no finishes at all, I would watch WCW from like, well, 97 main events of Nitro or pretty much the entire year of 1999 and 2000 of WCW. So, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing at this because just breaking it down, what can happen here? Olympico pins Bob Backlund. Well, we already know that that's not happening. Or you have Bob pin El Olimpico multiple times. Okay, that, that sounds plausible. You just make Bob look good. And El Olimpico is a guy that had actually been around since the mid-60s. He had been in the WWF prior to this. And he is just making his stopover here for a very brief period in 1980. He, he doesn't even last to the end of the year. In fact, I don't even think he lasts past the end of the summer. And this is the first set of matches that he is doing. He actually wrestled Larry Zbysko on the championship wrestling taping, which would have aired the following week on the 24th. And Larry won, I believe, via DQ or countout. He did not get a clean win or anything like that. Now, if you're wondering what Bob Backlund is up to, and I had mentioned in the intro to the show that he's facing a variety of opponents going through 1980, he actually has the famous match against Ken Patera, the Texas death match, on the Monday after this would have aired. So the rare champion versus champion match after the introduction of the Intercontinental Championship. Although I guess Patterson had won the IC title during their four-match series at MSG. So at the tail end of that, it was a champion versus champion match, but not not really promoted as such like you'd have with Hogan and Warrior years later. As you'd expect, we do get a handshake to start. Because remember, this is an exhibition of wrestling holds, damn it. And we start out with a single leg takedown by Bob. And just kind of examining the crowd for this. And I'm fascinated by the crowds at the Allentown and Hamburg tapings. Just complete silence as, as we start. We don't hear anything from Vince or Bruno as we go into this. It's almost as if you would think that they had edited out Howard Finkel telling you that, you know, at the Wildwood Gym in Wildwood, New Jersey, something was coming up. No, because I have the original audio for this, and then I have the one on the network, and it's just this long silence, probably as Vincent Bruno are trying to figure out, um, what the hell are we supposed to do with this? Because, you know, Vince Jr. is not in charge now. He's just announcer boy dreaming of one day growing up to be Howard Cosell. Get a go-behind by... By Bob, <laughs> I wrote "Let's go" in my notes. I don't know if I was, you know, trying to encourage them to move a little bit faster, but at least now Vince and Bruno are going to start talking. And Bruno's thoughts on all of this, for for whatever he has to say, and later on you get used to him not saying anything at all. But he actually does speak up during this, and it is quite hilarious. 
Well, you know, this is, as you said, it's, uh, it's going to be strictly scientific. It's going to be just moves, uh, holds, counter holds, escapes. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, Olympico is a very talented wrestler. There's no question about it. But, of course, he's in there against Backlund, who is the world champion, you know, which tells you that he definitely is the better man. And what Backlund will do is demonstrate some holds on uh, Olympico and have, a, and have a nice little workout to show people a little bit about how to apply holds, how to escape holds. That's really what it's about, and that's what Backlund's going to display here. In case you weren't keeping score, that was Bruno talking for 33 consecutive seconds, which is longer than he talked on the Superstars of Wrestling for the entire year cumulative of 1987. But it's just interesting to hear his thoughts as to what's going on here, because we get a waist lock by Bob and a takedown, and he actually does go for a pin, and then there's a quick one count, and then they get up and they shake hands again. And Bruno is all like, well, Bob did this here, but if this was a real match, he would have done... <laughs> it's just the strangest commentary. Now, when Backlund took, uh, got behind uh, Olympico and he took him over, took him back, Backlund could have easily stayed almost in a bridge position and he could have uh, pinned Olympico, but he's not looking for a pin. I think, again, if it's a little exhibition, we're just going to give a demonstration of holds and counter holds and so forth. And uh, but you know, so I, I I wonder. I don't think people are looking or they understand that this isn't a contest as to uh, somebody trying to beat anybody. I mean, at least I know Backlund's not going to try to beat Olympico. Oh no, of course not. It, it, it is, however, I, I feel even though we've seen several times here where Backlund had uh, uh, submission holds or certainly painful holds that could have been uh, submission, perhaps Backlund uh, released the hold. Which well, exactly. I I think though. In a match like this, if, if I could put myself in Olympico's shoes, even though it's an exhibition match, if I gave a, if a well, let's say Olympico, if Olympico really gives a, a good accounting of himself here, oh. I, I think that it you know, pushes him up in the ratings, doesn't I it? I exactly what you're saying. You're absolutely right. If, if Olympico can make some good moves and look good against Backlund over here, you can bet you that many promoters and people will be watching this thing will be looking at Olympico, you know, with... Uh, a lot more carefully and, and wanting him in arenas with uh, bigger and better opponents than perhaps he's been facing up to now because making a good showing against the world champion is a tremendous boot anyone i'm sure promoters would be looking at el olympico say oh he had a good showing against bob backland even though it was this weird match that i swear to god if you sync up with dark side of the moon somehow it actually makes sense oh yeah and he's kind of fat but don't don't worry about that because he has a nice little torch on the side of his mats and you get Bob letting go of another hold again. Because remember, it's an exhibition of wrestling holds. And even though, you know, we're not getting a real description of what it is. Because this is Vince McMahon <laughs> commentating on this. And although back in 1980, he was very good at actually calling matches and actually describing holds. There's not so much of the what a maneuver stuff. By this point, we've had three handshakes, and El Olimpico gets a full Nelson, which Bob fairly easily breaks and works the leg, as the, that that's the point where Vince and Bruno are talking about Olimpico's big chance to move up in the rankings because of this bizarre spectacle we have here. And as Bob lets go of the hold, they're just kind of facing off in the center of the ring, looking at each other, and we get the moment for which this match will forever be remembered because one angry man had the courage to stand up in the middle of eastern Pennsylvania and say exactly what was on his mind.
The most shocking thing about all of that is not that people would actually yell out stuff like that before the Howard Stern show popularized the whole Baba Booey and that stuff, but it's that nobody laughed. How How is it that the audience for this match could hear that guy clear as day and not actually laugh at what he was saying? It's not like they could have edited it out or anything. I, I, don't, I don't understand how people kept the composure. Oh, yeah, that's right. They were probably asleep at the time. Olympico grabs a leg, and Bob is kind of up on one leg, maintaining his balance, and he turns that into a monkey flip, which I'll admit was a pretty cool-looking spot, and another single-leg takedown by Bob, as the, the crowd, once again, is just completely silent, as if they're like, what? what is this? What is going on here? Like, are we sitting here just waiting for something to happen? Is Ken Patera going to emerge from the back and go after Bob and kind of set up an angle between those two? So Vince has decided to take this opportunity to break the silence and kind of, well, maybe lecture the fans on how they should feel. Does that sound familiar? I hope the fans really are enjoying this as, as much as we are because this is, you know, scientific wrestling and uh uh, you know, you get really have an appreciation of what it's all about. I think the fans do. You won't hear a lot of booing and cheering, naturally, because they realize what they're seeing. They're seeing a, an exhibition of wrestling, of wrestling holds. Uh, again, as we said, to holds and escapes and counter holds and so forth. And I think they're watching and enjoying it I and mean, appreciating it very much, I'm sure. Now, maybe Vincent Kennedy McMahon did enjoy this in the moment, this exhibition of wrestling holds. But now, in the year 2019, to look back and listen to Vince McMahon say that he is enjoying something like this is crazy (laughs) it's just amazing as olympico gets in a headlock and backland counters with the back suplex move dumping him on his head letting all japan know that if my promotion wasn't already contracted to new japan i would be ready to go into all japan and just start throwing bombs backland then goes for a pin but it doesn't get counted. So the thing that they were talking about earlier of, well, Backlund could pin Olympico multiple times. Like, no, no, we're not We're not even going to count that. We're going to treat this like the future Ronnie Garvin versus Greg Valentine submission match at the 1990 Royal Rumble where it's a submission match, but yet they keep going for pinfalls because they keep forgetting. Olympico gets a head scissors on Bob. And Backlund, because everything's always got to be a little bit weird with him, yeah, you're going to shake your head to get out of it, but when you have the image of a man and his head is between the legs of another man and he is shaking his head violently, and I know that this is a famous GIF file from the Hogan Warrior match where the Hogan or Warrior is down on one knee and with the angle that it is, it looks like something else. Like, perhaps oral sex going on, and so it is with Bob Backlund in the middle of the ring. But he does get his head out of there, and then they kind of stare at each other, Bob and Olympico, because what this match needs is just more uh, standing around and doing nothing. As they go into the ropes where, oh, is he about to punch him? And Olympico actually holds up, but the second time they do this, Olympico does hit him, but... Oh, it's with an open hand, as Vince says, so it's somehow legal. And Bob is starting to get a little pissed here, so he knocks Olympico down and locks in an odd-looking figure four. It's not quite as strange as the Hulk Hogan version from early 1996, where I don't even know how to begin to subscri- you know, describe what the hell that was, but... It's not like he does the spinning toehold and locks the leg in that way. He kind of takes a shortcut. 
even as this is going on, you can see the people at ringside. As I said, there's no George Zaharian, so it's all different people, and I don't really know one face from the other. I think I know who Mike Mittman is. I can't remember if he was one of the guys. Gary Michael Capetta is sitting there, and he, he looks bored by this entire thing. So if you ever wondered why Capetta was always on the phone in WCW during some of the matches, this was on where the big boys play back in the day, where the, the action would spill out of the ring, and then you'd see Capetta talking on the phone to somebody. That's because sometimes Capetta would get bored. He would make calls to his friends and just kind of make plans. I mean, that's clearly what he's up to. So seeing, Vince now seeing that Olympico has mostly been dominated in this match, well, we got to figure out something to make this meaningful because Olympico, in reality, was mostly a jobber to the stars, lower mid-card sort of type. And he had been around, I guess he had won tag titles or something. It, it doesn't really matter. So, But Vince is just going to make something on, on the spot about the greatness of El Olimpico. Well, this is sort of developing into more of a match, actually, than an exhibition now. Oh, well, thank God for that. But please, do tell us more about this masked man. Olimpico was one of the finest... Uh, Although he doesn't spend much time at all in Mexico, as we understand now, but uh, he's credited as being one of the finest wrestlers ever in, in, uh, in his home country. He did extremely well in Mexico, and then uh, that's why he came over here, because he thought for, you know, how good he was over there and for defeating most all opposition, he wanted to try his hand at coming here, the World Wrestling Federation, because this, this has a reputation of having the toughest and finest wrestlers in the world. So he wanted to try his hands against uh, the best wrestlers that exist in the world, which are over here. Vince with his, he's one of the finest Mexican wrestlers of all time. I could see if maybe they were doing a thing where we're using El Olimpico as a, a sort of Mil Mascaras proxy so that now we can shit on Mil somehow. But I don't, I don't think that that's what they're doing because that would be some seven-dimensional chess, and I don't think that they were quite capable of doing that. But Bruno kind of jumping in with his shot like... Mexican wrestling, screw them. It's not over there. I don't know what kind of geography uh, Bruno was a part of. Uh, maybe his, uh, maybe the globe that he kept in his house was just kind of kept on its side so that Mexico appeared to be east or west of the United States. So he, that, that that's why he must... There has to be a logical reason for all of that. And Bob actually now picks up Olympico. Like, he's going to go for the big atomic drop move, but... They're kind of near the ropes, so Olympico just sort of grabs the ropes and gets out of it that way. And a Boston Crab by Bob is blocked, and, you know, that doesn't get applied. And now all of a sudden the bell rings. And I'm left here scratching my head wondering, what exactly did we just witness as Bob raises the hand of both him and El Olimpico, but they're facing away from the hard camera. So these guys don't even know how to work. That's three or four years in NXT for them. And the cherry on top of this wonderful, weird Sunday is, once again, Vincent Kennedy McMahon letting us know we just had a 10-minute exhibition of wrestling holds. In 1980, sure, he, he may have actually felt this way, but think of where the WWF would be six to eight years down the road where he's in charge and the wrestling part of it has been de-emphasized. Vince wants to tell you so badly how much he enjoyed this weird, weird shit. Backlund raising the hand of Al Olympico. 
I enjoyed that. I really did. <laughs> Man, I'm glad Vince wasn't under oath when he said that. Although the laugh at the end is great. I, I should add that to the pantheon of Vince McMahon laughs. <laughs> Maybe it's because I have it on my brain this week, but it would be like if I went to a hockey game and it was an exhibition of skating moves or exhibition of stick handling moves, but neither team actually tried to, oh, I don't know, score a goal. A hockey game where the team's just kind of skating around and ignoring the puck the entire time and not actually competing against each other. But, oh, man, I mean, this is something that's been on my list for a very long time. It was covered on a very early Titans of Wrestling podcast that was on the Pro Wrestling Only feed back in 2013. And that is how this actually came to my attention. And in listening to that, all I could think then was, how did this actually end up taking place? Because Backland, I read his book and I went back to it. He never mentions this match. And you'd think that something as strange as this, because he has a pretty good memory for that sort of stuff, that he would bring it up. But no. So... Once again, I am left with more questions than answers. And if I ever meet Bob Backlund, I would probably ask him about this. And then he would do something crazy and probably put me in a headlock. Carlson will clear it ahead for Hoffman. Breakaway by Hoffman. Deeks and scores! Shades of Peter Forsberg and Alexander Radulov last night. I'm not sure that play translates as well to audio. A goal Ottawa scored at the beginning of Game 3 against the Bruins, despite Kenny Albert's great call of it. Because I should just make a gift file of this, because I don't think there's ever been a goal that was scored against my Bruins that I've watched as much, because game have to respect game on that, because he's standing next to his own net, and Eric Carlson floats a pass like like a, like an Ephus pitch over everybody, including Zidane Ochara, to the waiting Mike Hoffman at the opposite blue line, so about 130 feet. And it, it was basically the equivalent of throwing a 65-yard pass in football, obviously not equivalent distances, but it was crazy. And then Hoffman does the Peter Forsberg move at the end, which is where you kind of fake the goalie out, and then you kind of one-hand it around on the other side. Anyway, there. You happy, Ottawa Senators fans? You, you got your one moment, your one playoff run in 2017, and, and now look where everything's at. So your, your ownership is a complete mess. Although I do hope that you keep your team, because I'd like to have a reason to go up to Ottawa and see a game. So now we're kind of transitioning to the network version of this show. Although everything we saw was on the network but uh, before I pulled the clips from YouTube, but now we're going to go to the interview at ringside. And this is a little different than Vince at ringside in sort of the empty arena, which they would traditionally do. But here you get the live ringside interview, and Bruno is conducting it with Ken Patera and the Grand Wizard. And as I mentioned, Bruno feuded with Patera off and on at the very beginning of the year. They had matches and at the very end of the year. And Bruno doesn't like the boasting and braggadociousness of the Wizard and Patera after winning the Intercontinental title, which was a pretty good match. Over 20 minutes with Patterson and Patera. 
Patterson had his foot on the rope, but the referee did not see it because he had been knocked for a loop about two minutes before that. So that was kind of the excuse they gave to the. You're even protecting the downed referee for not seeing something like, oh, he was groggy. And that was something that they would repeat a year later with Backlund and Valentine. Oh, he's groggy and he couldn't tell the difference between the two guys. But with the foot on the rope thing. Luckily, the Grand Wizard is here, and as a promo, I like him the best out of out of Blassie, Wizard, and Albano, just because of the way he talks, kind of reminiscent of Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. But his, his explanation for the whole, everybody thought they saw a foot on the rope, oh no, th- this is wild. Bruno, I can go along with you as far as the referee being... In, incapacitated for a few seconds but as far as the great champion Ken Patera's foot being on the ropes no 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 what you saw on that film was a shadow cast by one of the photographers at ringside Ken Patera's foot was not on the ropes a great champion such as Ken would never do that well it is true that there were a lot of photographers around ringside it would be years before Vince would kick them out of there but Patera's foot was not on the rope either. It was Patterson's foot. It's not like he went for the Ric Flair cheat pin and did anything like that. So it was clean from Patera's end. It was that Patterson had the foot on the rope. So it's the superstar Graham finish losing the title to Backlund in 1978. But the, the interview kind of takes a turn as you know they talk about defending the Intercontinental title against you know op- opponents like a Putski and Ivan Putski, a Tony atlas and wizard uh, does his part to rip on all of them but with bruno conducting the interview this gives patera an opening to kind of reference bruno's other issues going on and why he might not be the man to take the intercontinental title off him other than the fact that bruno's got bigger fish to fry you know being a former world champion for 11 years and all not that you're a coward or not that you're not man enough bruno i I realize that you have your hands tied up with a young man I used to be a student of yours in the name of Larry Zabisco. <laughs> now, I don't know whether, after Larry Zabisco is finished with you, whether you'll be capable in getting the, in the ring with a man such as me. I think Larry Zabisco will eventually beat you to the point that you won't have the ability any longer to meet a man such as myself. Well, I will do my best to disappoint you there. I love how secure Bruno is in his position. Yeah, get used to disappointment. He's like the one guy from The Princess Bride. So up next, we have Rene Goulet taking on Tor Kamada. And as I look at this on the docket, I thought this could be literally any year between 1971 and 1983. It just so happens to be 1980 WWF. And in looking at these unusual names, and I know the name Goulet because there have been hockey players in the past, and I took French in high school, but that was over 20 years ago. So Goulet actually means gut in French, and Kamada means Shibata, which is actually a place in the Miyagi Prefecture of Japan. You know I got nothing to go on when... (laughs) I'm doing like the names of uh, w- w- the meaning of the names of the people in the match. But Rene Goulet in the early 70s is a WWF tag team champion alongside Carl Gotch, which is one of those things that blows my mind. Here is this promotion that turned into cartoonish buffoonery at a certain point, And Carl Gotch was there at, at some point. 
And Rene Goulet, granted, 71, it was just a completely different world. Rene Goulet is 47 years old when this match takes place. And Tor Kamada, he is actually from Hawaii, like a lot of guys who would build themselves from Japan. And there was an epic Titans of Wrestling bio on him. And I always have to refer back to that show because they covered WWF in 75 and then 79 through 82 and are a great resource for all of that stuff. And he has potentially... Uh, no, there ain't nothing potential about this. He has the funniest real name in the history of wrestling, which is McRonald Kamaka. The Ronald McDonald Good Time Stuff. Come on! Good time. Good time. Oh, great taste. Great taste. That's why this is our place. The Good Time Great Taste of McDonald's. Everybody! Thank you, Reverend. I actually said McRonald Kamaka. That is the man's name. So when you have something that sounds as silly as that, you probably want to get something particularly badass, which Torquemada is. And the origin of it is the name Tomas de Torquemada, who was the Grand Inquisitor in the Spanish Inquisition. So something that might be lost even on fans in 1980, because you know it's probably not something that people could look up and have it be readily available like I can for this podcast. Now, he had WWF stints in 77 and 1980. He had a match with Bob Backlund on television back in 77. This run here in 80, he's just kind of like your generic mid-card guy, despite being a PWF champion in All Japan in June of 1978, where he defeated Giant Baba and ended a five-year title reign, but it was merely to transition it over to Billy Robinson, who he lost it to later in the month. Goulet, first thing you notice about him, he's not wearing the glove that he would do as a heel during WWF house shows in the mid-80s. First thing you notice now is that he's not wearing knee pads. Befitting of somebody, as I said, he's 47 years old when this match is taped, and somebody who was born when Herbert Hoover was president of the United States, which you know just ages the entire thing terribly. Kamada, as he is wont to do, has a salt ceremony at the very beginning, and he actually picks some of it up and throws what appears to be green salt at Goulet. Not sure what that was all about and the different colors and all that, or if I'm just kind of seeing things from the footage. And Goulet starts out hot, and then they sit in a side headlock for what feels like forever, as Bruno and Vince talk about Kamada's weight being announced at 315. And Bruno, who apparently must shop at the Gorilla Monsoon supermarket where the weights and measures are just not in line with actual reality, the gravitational scale of the Earth's pull, all of that. Bruno says that he's easily 350 pounds. So clearly uh, he's being overcharged for produce products at the Monsoon market. Bruno discusses weight a little bit more and goes into a discussion of sumo wrestling for which I just wrote the very clever remark in my notes. Bruno on sumo. Well, Blassie once said that, uh, that you know, as a sumo wrestler, it was around 450 pounds. And he had gone down to, I believe, around 275, but he says that he felt just too weak at that particular body weight. And he, fe- he says he feels much better around 320, 325, 330. So to a lot of people, again, as we said before, they look at him and they say, boy, he's got an awful lot of fat. 
Yeah, he does have fat, but those sumo wrestlers, they all have a lot of fat, but they're very, very tough people. They have tremendous balance. They know how to use that weight to their advantage in wearing an opponent on. It almost seems like Bruno is talking about sumo wrestlers like they're a specific race of people. I know a lot of them are, are Japanese, but, you know, they come from all different backgrounds. The the fat people are a proud race, and he just keeps going on and on. It's fun to hear Bruno actually talk, though, for once. As, because you get Goulet and Kamada, they're just kind of laying on the mat at this point. And then eventually they, they kind of have a, a shoulder block battle, and Goulet actually wins it, despite being over 100 pounds lighter than Kamada, who goes to the outside to just kind of regroup, and Tor goes to the eyes, coming back into the ring to g- gain the advantage. One other interesting thing about Rene Goulet in his career, he picked up the first ever victory over Ric Flair. Apparently, it was Ric's second match. The first one ended in a draw. So that wouldn't be the person that I would have expected would hold that uh, little trivia answer, I guess, to call it. So Bruno starts complaining about the tape on Tor Kamada's fingers, which I found amusing because it's the one time Bruno kind of sounds like Jesse Ventura because he would always complain about the tape on Barry Windham's hands. Kamada goes to a chokehold on the mat, and then when Goulet regroups, he goes for a slam on Tor Kamada. Now, I don't know. Rene Goulet, you may know him from later, you know, helping with run-ins in the late 80s WWF as the guy with the Hulk Hogan hair, but with the glasses and all of that. You don't think of him as being able to body slam anybody over 300 pounds. A small package, very sloppy looking, does get a two count for (laughs) Goulet. Bruno now credits the superior balance of Tor Kamada for why he didn't get slammed when, in fact, I think it was, you know, the lots of fat that he was talking about (laughs) for the reason why. And the best part is Kamada gets slammed right after he says it. Now the reason... that slam not working you know people reacted when they saw Goulet trying to slam uh, Kamada again this is one of the things that sumo that's really great about the sumo wrestler they have tremendous tremendous balance and he's so when he felt that slam coming he so braced himself in a way that he completely made it difficult or impossible for Goulet to body slam him all right there now where he got him off balance Kamada did not have a chance to brace himself and shows that Goulet did have the, the power to slam him because Kamada could not, uh, you know, brace himself to use that the tremendous balance that they have. I admit that was a hell of a recovery by Bruno considering that something happened that directly contradicted what he said. And they kind of face off Goulet and Kamada for about two minutes where literally nothing happens. I mean, this this is George Costanza's dream for Seinfeld in the NBC pitch between the Backland Olympico match and this. Nothing happens on the show. It's just like life. Yeah, I mean, if I was looking for hot angles or anything like that, I would go back to the craptitude of AWA from 89 and 90. I'd probably get more out of that. And Goulet goes to work with an arm bar, but in a short TV match with a time limit of 10 minutes, you're kind of like, okay, this is how you're going to pursue things on offense as we are several minutes into this match. And he actually gets some arm drags. And Tor, he has kind of an awkward way of taking those. It's uh, it's really actually kind of funny to see him get over for those arm drags. And But Tor then gets a head scissors on the mat, but Goulet gets out of it at the cost of his ears, which were probably heavily cauliflowered after that, and a side headlock to let 
St. Louis territory know that he's ready. By the way, F St. Louis. And Vince compares Kamada to a whale, which I thought was kind of a kind of a mean-spirited thing since Bruno just spent like 30 seconds straight calling him fat. And a sunset flip by Goulet gets two. Always love to see the sunset flip on the fat guys because I'm very excited that, you know, they might just sit down and end up getting a pin that way. As ten, I've, I actually kept track of this match on my own. I, I served as my own timekeeper. And 10 minutes have now gone by as Goulet is on the outside of the ring. And then all of a sudden, it, the bell rings at the 10 minute and 22 second mark. So they didn't even have the decency to time it out to exactly 10 minutes. They let this go over by 22 seconds. I mean, it's shit like this that gives 1980 wrestling a bad name. Oh, you want to go back to when guys would just sit inside headlocks, and then you show them a match like this, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, that did sometimes happen, especially maybe with a Tor Kamada who, you know, while he was actually fairly mobile for a big man, I mean, what incentive is there on the B-show to really be putting out, like, a 10-minute masterpiece? Goulet... And Kamada actually had six singles matches over the course of 1980. They never actually met up in any other year. And Goulet won or had a draw in every single one of those matches. He went 4-0-2, but he lost most of the tag matches in which they were uh, on opposite sides. We actually ended with a drop kick by Goulet. It was actually after the match, and he kind of bowed in in sort of a mocking way to Tor Kamada, who just kind of hits the showers. Tor actually ended up doing the Andre the Giant Memorial get tied up in the rope spot for a little bit. But this match, a 10-minute thing earlier with Backlund and Olympico, I mean, at least that was weird, and you, you could kind of look back on it and be like, what the hell was that? This... You look at, and it would, yeah, it gave 1980 wrestling a bad name. And I start questioning my will to actually do this podcast. Like, why did I pick this show? You know, if I had just picked the video on YouTube instead of the actual episode of All Star Wrestling, I could have not done this match. But unfortunately, I think I would have been out one Larry Zabisco match and one Hulk Hogan match, and that is coming up. But first, a word about ProWrestlingOnly.com, where you can check out other podcasts, match reviews, features, and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games, matches, playlists, wrestler appearances, non-wrestling TV shows, movies, and more, and probably some good stuff from wrestling from the year 1980, which is actually, there's a bumper crop out there, people. But join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only forums online for over a decade with over 2,000 registered members. Yeah, it's over 2,000 registered members and a hell of a lot of threads. So many, I cannot even determine how many there are. The message board is a vibrant community, whether you want to talk about a specific match in the Match Succession Archive, take a deep dive in microscope form, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present. Check all of this out and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. And yes, there are threads devoted to certain years. Two one count, man. Sini the other way. It's deep. Warning track back at the wall. It'll hit at the 380 mark and turn into the corner. One run is scored. Two runs will score. Mancini's got a triple and two RBIs. Trey Mancini, a four RBI ball game, and the Orioles lead at 15 to three.
Okay, this was the last relevant moment in Baltimore Orioles history. August 25th, 2017 at Fenway Park. That game ended up being a 16-3 to victory for the O's, and they swept the Red Sox. They got themselves back in the wild card race. But I have to call attention to this game because something happened that has never before or since happened in the history of Major League Baseball. The Red Sox put in a position player to pitch the ninth inning, which is always very exciting because you're either going to see like a long home run or somebody's going to embarrass themselves by striking out. In this case, they used Mitch Moreland, who is the a first baseman for the Red Sox. But in putting him in, they lose the DH. And when you lose the DH, now the pitcher has to bat in that spot. They took... Hanley they put Hanley Ramirez in the game at first base and he would go in the spot where the DH was which was Chris Young because Moreland was playing first before that and then when the Red Sox came up in the bottom of the ninth when Hanley Ramirez's spot came up in the order Chris Young who had been substituted out for Hanley Ramirez actually batted and got a single so if you look at the box score of that game it says Chris Young started DH and then Hanley Ramirez came into the game at first base, and then Chris Young again pinch hit for Hanley Ramirez. Only time in the history of Major League Baseball that a player has illegally re-entered a game, although with the score being 63, nobody gave a crap. And in fact, I didn't even notice at the time when it happened. It probably should have started keeping score again, but then again, we have a whole internet. I do know how to keep score, though, for baseball. I do it kind of in an old-school way. So up next, we have... Larry Zabisco, he's taking on Angelo Gomez, who I want to say he looks like an old-school jobber, but he's got a tattoo, uh, which seems pretty rare for a guy in 1980. He's also signing autographs, and what the fuck is going on with these guys signing autographs? Like, And it's always like the job guys. Like, Why are the fans so interested in them? So Larry Zabisco, he obviously had a pretty good 1980. I covered some of it back, way back in episode 14. But the question I have to ask, you got the Bruno feud, and once that's over, the thought of, do you put a title on Larry Zabisco? Even if you don't want to take the title off Bob Backlund and, and give it to Zabisco because, you know, he, he might kill the belt as he killed later championship belts. Let's say the Intercontinental Championship. Would you put that title on him? I would say maybe, but unfortunately you had, well, unfortunately for Larry anyway, you have Ken Patera there who is a superior heel in just about all aspects. What Larry had was the Bruno feud. Can you imagine a, a Larry-Pedro Morales feud, which is what it would have been at the end of 1980 and into 81? It doesn't exactly capture the imagination. I mean, you want to talk about Larry Z. It's like Larry Z, 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 Z you know, getting sleepy. And Larry, he for this match, he's actually late to the ring. I don't know if he was filming an episode of According to Larry, but unfortunately we don't get a promo from him. Maybe he was asleep in the back because he was watching Kamada Goulet go 10-22. And he starts blabbing to Dick Worley, which I imagine is, could you believe that they let that friggin' match go 10 minutes and 22 seconds? What the hell is the deal with that? Larry not wearing knee pads, and I should point out that Angelo Gomez is wearing one knee pad, so clearly he left that at some woman's uh, place, uh, some rat's place, uh, shortly before that. So, 
Gomez one, Larry zero on the knee pad front. And he's talking to Worley, Zabisco is, for like two straight minutes. I mean, this is stalling par excellence even for Larry Zabisco. And Vince just says, Larry can't get along with anybody these days. I'm thinking, really? Not anybody? He has a dispute with your dad over money, and that's why he ends up leaving at the beginning of 81. And I'm wondering, is Bruno even on this match, or does he recuse himself from calling Larry Zabisco matches as Larry gets a waist lock, a wrist lock takedown at first? <laughs> but there's there's one wise ass in the crowd having witnessed the Backland Olympico match followed by the 10 minute Kamada Goulet draw, who he's just had enough. I don't know why that guy sounds so much like Jacques Rougeau when he yells, uh, like, I am the Mountie! I want my money back! Single leg takedown by Larry. This is all very exciting stuff. Fireman's carry takeover. And he's just hitting these moves and then just sort of backing off. And on commentary, it's just Vince talking about him as Larry talks to Dick Worley a little bit more. And knee to the gut, sends his man to the corner, cross-corner whip by Zabisco and then finally the only relevant thing so far in this match as Bruno finally pipes up I'd rather not say how he looks because you know I'm so more disgusted more frustrated more bitter at this Judas than I've ever been before and I, I don't see nothing good about him at all you know one thing that probably made it tough for Larry going forward is there was almost no way he was going to have a better feud with anybody no matter what he did than with Bruno San Martino because of what Bruno's doing on his side, adding the level of emotion and the betrayal and everything. It's still coming through here, even going back to that empty arena promo that I played in episode 14. That was just so great and probably one of the greatest interviews that I've actually covered on this show. Gomez fires up with some right hands, but uh, this is mercifully going to be put to an end with a vertical suplex by Larry that yes that was his finisher in 1980 we're going to talk about move inflation I mean you know there was currency inflation going on at the time but move inflation not so much you'd see that a couple of decades down the road and Larry blows kisses to the crowd after the three count and this dare I say three minutes and 27 seconds of some of the suckiest three minutes and 27 seconds of my entire life but it's interesting when we get to the end and vince is kind of introducing what's coming up next like i don't know i sense a little change in vince jr's voice when he gets to talk a little bit about hulk hogan coming up we shall return with ladies and gentlemen the undefeated six feet nine inch 300 plus pounds of hulk hogan yeah, definitely a change in tone from Vince talking about Larry Z to Hulk Hogan. That That is basically what Tumescence would sound like if you could actually hear it in audio form. Got to be thinking over there. They got to they gotta pull it together. Here's Brady with a fake. It's Dion Lewis with just a little excitement before the end of regulation. Now why on earth would I run the audio of the last play of regulation from Super Bowl 51 when there's so much stuff to choose from? Like, I don't know, when Atlanta takes a 28-3 lead in the third quarter. But I'm obsessed with the end of regulation from that game because Atlanta punts with about 12 seconds to go. And I think the Patriots' fair catch takes place at their own 35, which if it had been about 10 to 12 yards further upfield... 
they would have done a fair catch kick to win the Super Bowl, which would have been the most incredible thing that could ever happen just because of how rare that play is in the NFL. Let me just explain the rule because it almost never comes up. If you fair catch a punt in the NFL, a team is allowed to attempt a field goal, but it's not a traditional field goal. At the spot of the catch, you know, at one of the hash marks or whatever, you'd be allowed to hold it like it was an extra point, but the guy is allowed to run up on it like it's a kickoff and it's not he's not limited to only two or three steps like they are some of the time I think now and that even even beyond that they they were just too far away to even attempt it I don't think one of them has been made in like almost 40 years beyond that they instead of just kneeling down the Patriots were in this weird fumble ruski play which as weird as it was to see Tom Brady running like an option fake you had Deion Lewis running to the other side of the field, getting his foot caught in the turf and looking like he like blew up his ACL or something to that effect. And he turned out to be fine. He didn't play in the overtime, but I don't think he would have anyway because it seemed like James White was the one that they were going to go to anyway. So our final match here is Hulk Hogan. Uh, I, I don't know whatever became of him taking on Mike Masters. Now, I can tell you what became of him. He's announced from Kearney, New Jersey. I always thought it was Kearney, New Jersey, but I, I I don't really know. But he actually would go on to work as a fellow by the name of Rocky Jones. This is not a name you could have used in the WWF. I mean, you know, you got SD Jones sitting there at some point or another. So, you know, you can only have one Jones at a time. But the year after this, Masters kind of breaks out of his enhancement talent box. And he goes all the way across the country to Portland Wrestling, where if you do a lookup of Mike Masters, one of the first results you get is him in Portland in 1981, standing next to Buddy Rose, who they're next to a cage of some kind and buddy is having issues you know with his his army facing all these other guys and he wants this mike masters guy to join him but they demonstrate him uh, masters that is he's holding an apple in his left hand and he crushes it with his bare hand which just shows me that the apple was mealy and not fit for consumption anyway i mean i have a lot of spare apples in the fruit bowl but I don't think I'm going to grab one out of there because I just have to wash my hand or whatever. Especially if I did it at work. The, the, the sinks at work are complete garbage. Hopefully that doesn't violate any sort of non-disparagement clause. So this fella, Hulk Hogan, you go on to become pretty famous, I, I would say. It's funny that Hogan is facing a guy named Masters because out of all the outrageous claims that Hulk Hogan has made in the years, he's never said that he won the Masters. Well, you know something, dude? I played Tom Watson in 1977 at Augusta National, and I beat him fair and square, dude. I'm surprised that's not in Hogan's book. And then after he was done playing 18 with Watson, he went off to play with Metallica that night or something like that. At this point, even though I alluded to my lengthy list of books that I have to get to, I should just buy Hogan's book from the mid-2000s so I can just kind of go through chapter and verse of everything that he claims in it. Because it's really one of those things that's for entertainment purposes only. I don't feel like I would glean anything out of Hulk Hogan's actual life. I mean, God knows that there was enough on television during the decade. So he locks up with Masters and kind of 
tosses him off. And Masters is, is a pretty well-built guy. What's funny is later on when he was getting pushed in Portland and other places, he wasn't quite as muscular some of the time. Here he just looks like a child compared to Hogan who picks him up and tosses him from corner to corner. And a backbreaker by Hogan, the traditional one, not the Bret Hart side one, and he picks him up at a two count. So that, that it, it is a very familiar thing that you're going to see during this match. Very basic stuff. And there is this, I don't know, narrative that Hulk Hogan wasn't very good in 1980 and 81. So like this time period before he becomes the top guy, even in the AWA in 82 and 83 after the face turn. If you put him in there with a guy like Bob Backlund, you know, he, he could pull off good matches. He could at least be, you know, led to the water to be able to drink. I'm not saying that any of the stuff with him and Andre, like the showdown at Shea, was any great shakes. But the thing that amuses me the most about that feud is not the actual matches itself, but how the WWF was actually able to bury that like it was nuclear material. So that when 1987 would roll around, it would make that matchup seem like an even bigger money matchup than it was. I'm not sure how much it would have mattered for anybody who was watching in 1980 to be there in 87. And, and these guys are now on opposite sides. And oh, they, they actually faced off before. Hogan actually slammed Andre at various points. That's the even more amusing thing is that Andre gets slammed on WWF programming and somehow they were, I mean, they didn't end up using Yucca Mountain for storage of nuclear waste. They just put, tried to put all the footage of Andre being slammed in there. That didn't quite work. I mean, you know, the truth always seems to come out. And Hogan's offense is pretty basic at this time. I mean, I'm not expecting him to go out and just, you know, do every single move in his arsenal. But he does do the running leg drop. And you think, okay, well, this one was quick. One, two, but at, no, he doesn't even get to a two count. Hogan picks Masters up at the one count. And eventually, Vince and Bruno kind of get sick of Hogan's shit. And no surprise coming from Bruno, because he probably has a problem with him at this point anyway. Oh, my. I guess it's over. No, Hogan says it's not. That is undoubtedly one of the most unsportsmanlike things in wrestling today. Ooh. And... Many people feel it should be uh, an automatic disqualification, Bruno. I really would like that. I really would love to see one of these guys get it that way because, as you said, it's most unsportsman. The only time I ever actually remember a disqualification happening because somebody kept pulling the man up in an enhancement match was Ronnie Garvin during his referee stint, which I talked about on the Place to Be podcast earlier this week since he was in with Greg Valentine on the July 89 Saturday Night's Main event. There, there was a match on weekly TV with Dino Bravo and Ronnie Garvin, I think, just got tired of having to watch a Dino Bravo match and disqualified him for pulling the band up. I don't remember who the opponent was, but I know that it happened and it made sense given that it was Dino Bravo and he was probably just tired of, of it. And two leg drops by Hogan where he pulls him up. The, the second one was the last one that you heard there. A vertical suplex by Hogan, which he's now using the last guy's finisher in his match. But instead of going for a pin, once again, he pulls him up at one. 
and gets Masters up into a bear hug, which you can tell that the charisma is there with Hogan with just the way that he carries himself, but... There's something missing on this particular All-Star taping. Like, the, the crowd is just completely comatose. This is the third, uh, it's the second out of the three in that taping. I I didn't actually watch the show before this or the show after this because with All-Star in 1980, I don't think I need to watch shows around it to gain context to what was going on in the promotion. It just seems like this is just isolated from everything else. The bear hug does finish in this one. And again, I'm wondering, where the hell is Blassie? I was kind of hoping he'd be there, you know, hold up the cane in the air and, you know, raise Hogan's hand. But uh, even Blassie doesn't give a rat's ass about these all-star tabies. He He's too busy in the middle of a game of cribbage with Scullant in the back. But when I think of 1980 Hulk Hogan, I think... You know, you look at his matches and you say, okay, was he actually good at this point? Well, no. Like I said, it was pretty basic stuff. But the way that they were able to bury that Andre feud from having people even thinking about it or having it in their mind, and that meant that they had to take a show like the showdown at Shea and just downplay it incredibly, which I guess was made easier by the fact that Larry Zbysko did take off and he was in the main event match of that show. But you have Hogan Andre there in a baseball stadium, and you kind of forget about that so that someday you can run the same match in a football stadium. And that is pretty much a wrap for WWF All-Star Wrestling for May 17th, 1980. Vince does say that coming up next week, we're going to have a tag team match between the Wild Samoans and facing the team of Dominic Danucci and Rene Goulet. So I'm, I maybe I should watch that one. I get to see Rene Goulet lay on the mat in a side headlock against one of the Samoans, probably Sika. But before I go for this week, and apologies for the show being a day late. I made the joke again about how like your trash and recycling goes out a day later when you have the Monday holiday. Well, in this case, doing the show has become more difficult, especially if I try to do something off the network because getting the audio, it can be a little tra- trying for me. And and now at work, I don't have Wi-Fi so uh, before, at least I used to be able to look up stuff fairly readily on my phone when I was on my break. I could even, you know, look up a quick YouTube clip or, or something to that effect. Now the, the Wi-Fi is completely gone. So when I go to work, I am basically in prison for eight hours and it is so freaking miserable. Anyway, elsewhere in podcast, another announcement, an Adams Division podcast will be taped in the coming days looking at, alongside Steve Bennett, our 10 favorite single season sports teams of all time. So if you want to hear Steve talk about the 2009 New Orleans Saints, or if you want to hear me talk about, I'm going to tell you right now, I have five teams that are non-Boston, so it's not going to just me be, be me going oh, Bruins this, you know, Celtics that. It's not going to be all that. Yeah, they do dominate the top of the list, but hey, you want to hear some quality 1995 Houston Rockets reminiscing? You you, you come to me, okay? You you go somewhere else for, for, you know, some of that other stuff. On the wrestling podcast about nothing this week with Mike Crockett and Brawler Malonis, they welcome back in Tarzan Tyler, who apparently... Apparently, they, him and uh, Malonis had a bit of a tiff at one point. 
But I was very fascinated in Julian Starr talking about the neck surgery that he had at one time and the way that the doctor kind of reacted to it when he went for a second opinion because he got something very different on the first opinion, basically saying, ah, don't wrestle ever again. And the story of the second doctor was uh, rather interesting in what they ended up doing. On the Our Vantage Point podcast, they start a new season, Joe Morana and Michael Quinn do, looking at the best Intercontinental Champions of all time. And they did a quick review of a WWF show called Eleven Alive from March of 1998. Basically, another repackaged, reheated, warmed-over version of of Shotgun Saturday Night that to present to some sort of different audience. You know, kind of de-New Yorkifying the New York territory for a grander audience. And Steve Bennett's Sportscasters, I know a new episode of that will be out soon. I know he's taping a bunch of interviews and just going to cobble all of that together. As for next week, hopefully I'm still alive then with the Stanley Cup final. Uh, n- nice little Easter egg for you to kind of figure out. Now, I I tape these shows in segments, you know, whenever I can. Most of this show was taped in the morning during the week. However, there was a part that I taped on Wednesday night when I got home from the Bruins' overtime loss to the Blues in Game 2. And I think it's pretty obvious what that segment was because you could tell... Maybe the audio is a little bit different, but my tone is definitely much angrier, much darker, because it's freaking 12.30 in the morning. I just driven home. There's no freaking Wendy's or Burger King open because I live in the freaking outer suburbs. I thought the Wendy's in my town was open until 3 a.m. No, of course not. Uh, I mean, I was going to have like a Jim Cornette conniption fit at some point because I hadn't eaten anything in like 12 hours, so... I don't know. Maybe I'm just exhausted and I should just think about going to bed earlier on a more regular basis. Now, coming up, I don't know what show I'm going to do for next week. It's probably going to be something off YouTube so that I have a much easier time pulling sound clips. But one announcement. Yes, I am going to do an episode of Portland Wrestling. Maybe not one where Mike Masters breaks an apple in front of Buddy Rose. But... You know, there's that's going to take some time because I want to be able to, you know, know what I am talking about when it comes to the Portland Territory. It's not something I necessarily know as much about, even though I've been to Portland two times and it is a lovely city. But other things kind of in the queue is I found an episode of Memphis Wrestling, and that always seems to be... I find lots of episodes of Memphis Wrestling, but I I never thought to try and find this one. Yes, from one of the weekly TVs in April of 81, there is the the famous Terry Funk, Jerry Lawler, Empty Arena match. And that one might be next week, it might be the week after... I'm not entirely sure how that's going to go, but do stay tuned to my... I don't really announce it, I guess, as much on Facebook because I just sort of roll my eyes at all the Facebook scandals. Of course, there's Twitter, too, and Twitter is you know, kind of a cesspool, but I usually make my announcements there, so give me a follow there, at GF Allentown Pod, and be sure to give Greetings Allentown a five-star review on iTunes, despite the odd mess that this show ended up becoming with the audio sounding weird that I have from the network. A five-star review provides what is known as social proof and lets 
the iTunes, Apple Music people know that you are listening to and enjoying Greg's Valentine because you are engaged with the product. Thank you so much for listening, and do tune in next Thursday? It'll probably be Thursday, I, I would hope. If I pick an easier show to do than something from 1980, I may, pro- probably. At some point, and the later half of the week, but not Saturday... Yeah, there will definitely be a show. It'll probably be on Thursday. I mean, I'm not going to be late two weeks in a row. I don't think. But do tune in then for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Nothing happens.